I'm excited to be able to uh, be up here and continue this sermon series called Asking for a Friend. And in the spring, we asked all of our small group participants to just send in questions of things they'd like us to talk about, questions they had about the Bible or, or Christianity or, or society or whatever it was. And we were flooded with questions. We had to kind of parse through them and pick the ones that we could uh, you know, do in a single sermon as opposed to an entire sermon series. And so today we're looking at the question, what is biblical worship? What is biblical worship? And I, I have to say right at the beginning, this is a huge topic. And entire books have been written on this on this one question alone. So what you're going to get from me today is kind of a bite-sized little Cliff's Notes type of answer, uh, but one that I hope is kind of eye-opening a little bit and, and draws us closer to God. But as I was preparing this message, I began to reflect on my own church history and uh, looking back at, at my experiences in church services. And growing up, we didn't I didn't grow up in a in a, in a home where God was anywhere on our radar. We didn't grow to, go to church as a kid. My first time setting foot in church, I was 14 years old. We had just moved from Maryland to, or from Arizona to Maryland to live with my grandmother, who was a devout Christian, and she wanted us to go to church with her. So my mom said, yeah, let's go. And I remember the day setting foot into this really tiny old Methodist church. I had no idea what a Methodist was. And uh, the pastor's wearing these really fancy robes and they're singing these strange-sounding songs out of something called a hymnal. I didn't know what that was. It was a lot of sit, stand, sit, stand, sit, stand. And, and you know, the pastor spoke in such a way that it was kind of like listening to, like, a lecture. You know, I didn't know what was going on the entire time. And truthfully, I was bored out of my mind. And uh, I never wanted to go back. And so we went a few more times, and my sister and I said, Hey, Mom, we hate this. We don't want to go anymore. And she didn't make us go anymore. So that was my first church experience. Fast forward about five years now, and I've got a huge crush on this girl who goes to church every Sunday. And so I go to church on a Sunday to try and impress her and woo her a little bit. And this church was drastically different. It's a massive church, like 2,000 people. And it was a Wesleyan church. I had no idea what a Wesleyan was. And the pastor, he wore a suit instead of these fancy robes. And the, the words to the songs were on screen. Uh, some were from this book called The Hymnal. Some weren't. Uh, and it was just this... Uh, a totally different experience. I still had no idea what was going on the entire time. And I'll be honest, I was a little bit weirded out by the entire experience. The pastor, he was yelling, he was spitting everywhere, he was putting his fists in the air, he's pounding on the thing as he's, as he's doing. I can only understand about half of what he was saying. It was, the other half was just gibberish coming out of his mouth. And he did something I'll never forget. I kid you not, midway through his sermon, he jumps off stage and he starts running a lap around the ministry center. Dead serious. The people are cheering. A couple more people, I thought, got up and started running around with them, and they're just running laps. And I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world is going on? This is some sort of crazy cult. Is this girl worth all this? Well, thankfully, it wasn't a cult, and that girl is now my amazing wife, but those experiences, yes, yeah, go ahead. I got the girl, you know. I wooed her, you know, charmed her. But more importantly, I got Jesus, right? So anyway, that was cheesy. I'm going to just pretend I didn't say that. Those were my first experiences with Christian worship. And I look back on those experiences now completely differently than I, than I looked at them in the present. And I look back now and I recognize there's nothing wrong with either one of those worship experiences. 
In fact, what that reveals is, is there's a vast array of expressions of worship within God's church because there are a vast array of people, personalities, and temperaments within God's family. But as I reflected on, on those experiences, I realized that this question that we're wrestling with today, what is biblical worship, is an extremely important question. Because both of those experiences, though vastly different, were God-honoring expressions of worship. But we have to, I think it's important that we take a look at, at what we mean by worship today. Because if we were to define biblical worship by the way we use the word and term worship today, we get a kind of an interesting definition of worship. If we were to define it by how we use it today in 2021, here's what worship is, right? Worship is something we physically do. Worship is music. And worship is all about us. That's how we could define worship based on how we use it today. And let me unpack that a little bit to, to get to the significance there. We often use the word worship to describe something we physically do. Now, if that's all worship is, then it's really easy to get confused about what is biblical worship because there's different ways to physically worship. In fact, if you were to look around just this room, this ministry center today when the, the band was playing the music, you'd see some people, you know, most everyone's standing, some are sitting. Some had their hands in the air, some were clapping, some were cheering, some were crying, some were looking up, some were looking down, some were eyes open, some were eyes closed. All these different physical expressions of worship. And if worship is just something that we physically do, then which one of those was right? Which one of those was wrong? If we were to look at, at the Bible and, and, the, and the, the biblical origin of the word worship, it's most often found in the Old Testament. And in the original Hebrew, the word worship was used to describe two very distinct physical postures. The first common way was to describe someone laying flat on their face in reverence to God. So actually laid out, arms out, face towards the ground in reverence to God. That was one way the word worship was used in the original Hebrew. The second way was to describe someone bowing down and kissing the hand of someone akin to the way a dog licks the hand of their master. So that's the, the words to describe worship in the Old Testament. Those are the physical postures uh, we're given as examples of physical worship. So if we want to worship physically the way the Bible describes it, we need to rearrange this whole room because we don't have rooms to, to lay flat or at the very least get on our knees. At the end of the day, worship is so much more than something we physically do. Worship is more than something we physically do. Next, we often use the word worship to describe the music. Quite often, people, I'll hear people after service or someone will come up to me and say, the worship was really good today. And then in the next breath, they'll say, and the sermon was really impactful. As if those are two separate things. And the reality is they're not. Worship is so much more than music. And then thirdly, we make worship about us the way we talk about it. I'm going to ask you a question. Gut check time. Really honest with yourself. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask anybody to show hands or anything like that. But listen, have you ever said or thought Something along the lines of, I didn't get anything out of worship today. Have you ever said that or thought that? If you have, I'll tell you what, you've made worship all about you. You've made worship all about you. Through the years, I've heard all sorts of excuses from people why they couldn't worship for any reason. I had someone come up and tell me one day they couldn't worship because I wasn't wearing a tie. We were at a church one time that had pews, and we remodeled the ministry center and changed it to chairs. And we had people that said, I can't worship in a chair. It's got to be pews. We had people say, I can't worship out of a hymnal. We had people say, I can't worship if we're not using a hymnal. You know? I've had someone say during the Christmas time, I can't worship because there's no nativity scene on stage. 
Let me tell you what, if, we, if, if, if that's what worship is, then what we've done is made worship about our personal preference and we've made worship all about ourselves. And worship is way more than that. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've uttered all these phrases myself. I've used the word worship in all of those contexts. And none of them are necessarily inherently wrong. Worship is something that we physically do. Worship is expressed through music. And worship is about us in that it is about our love for God and our attentiveness to the divine and our openness to encountering Him. But if we allow that to define worship, then what we end up with is a very shallow and narrow definition of worship. And we miss out on so much that God wants for us. So then, what is biblical worship? I think the motivation behind that question that came to us stem from a desire to get some clarity about how are we to properly worship God? What is proper worship? What does it look like to properly worship God in our daily lives as Christ followers today? I've heard it said that that to worship God is to obey the great commandment. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The challenge is we're all different, right? It's maybe easier for me to worship God with all my mind while someone else, it may be easier for you to worship with all your heart and someone else, all your soul and someone else, all your strength. And when you have that, you're going to get these different expressions of worship. The reality is though we should, we're all on this journey. We should all be headed toward an existence of kind of whole worship in which we do love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength. So what is biblical worship? How do we properly worship God as believers today? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us a very clear answer on that. And he does so in a, in a, in a very unlikely way, having a very unconventional conversation with a very unlikely person. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 4. And we're going to explore a short passage from this chapter. But I want to give some background first. When we, when we encounter Jesus in this scene, he's, he's been traveling from Judea to Galilee with his disciples. And on his way, he passes through a region called Samaria. Now, it's important to know that first century Jews, when traveling from Judea to Galilee, would never, ever, ever, ever go through Samaria. There was a much more commonly used route by Jews that would bypass Samaria. And the reason is that Jews and Samaritans hated one another. It was a bitter, bitter hatred. In fact, if a Jew wanted to brutally insult another Jew, they might say, hey, what are you, a Samaritan? There was an encounter that Jesus had with the Pharisees. They were trying to discredit who he was, and they said to him, you're a Samaritan with a demon. They were trying to discredit who he was. That's the, the hatred that existed between these two people groups. But the way John writes this account, he uses language that makes it very clear that Jesus had received a kind of special instruction from God to intentionally travel through Samaria. So Jesus was obeying God's will in taking this route. And so along the way, they get into Samaria and they stop to rest. And the disciples, they head into the nearest town to buy some supplies and food. And Jesus finds a comfortable place to rest. And so he's sitting up against this well. And after a while, along comes this Samaritan woman to get some water. And Jesus breaks all the rules and he asks this woman, this Samaritan woman, for some water. And then Jesus and this Samaritan woman, they break all social norms. They break everything that was acceptable in the day. And they end up having this conversation in which this woman's life is changed forever. But it was, it was in this part of this conversation, and this whole story could be a sermon in all of itself. It's amazing what happens in this story. 
But this woman brings up something in the conversation that's a major point of contention between Jews and Samaritans, and that is what is the proper way and where is the proper place to worship God. And that's where we're going to pick up this conversation. But before we read God's word this morning, I'm going to invite us to just go to God in prayer and just pray for for wisdom and discernment as we read God's word this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your holy scriptures and just the reality that they're so easily accessible to us today, God. Lord, overwhelm us with your presence this morning. May we be aware of of just how you want to speak to us and, and how you want to shape us and mold us today. Holy Spirit, open up our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears to the truths of these scriptures this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so John 4, verses 19 through 24. Says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So, how do we worship God? What is biblical worship? Jesus gives us the answer. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. But I think there's so much packed in that statement. And to understand what Jesus is saying, to understand what this woman says about, you know, you say we worship here on this place, and you say we need to worship in this place, we have to go back a little bit. Actually, we have to go back a long way. And we have to look at at, at God's Uh, the route God took, the steps God took to dwell among his people. So we have to look to God's temple a little bit to unpack what Jesus says and appreciate the significance, to appreciate and and have a proper view about the relationship between God and humanity. So when you hear the word temple, if you're like me, the first thing that pops to mind is Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. But after that, maybe the first thing that pops to mind is, is the temple in Jerusalem. All right, maybe you've seen pictures or you've heard about this or you know it from God's word. But that may be the first thing that pops into mind. Initiated by King David, the construction was completed by his son, King Solomon, and and the temple in Jerusalem was God's dwelling place on earth. It represented the coming together of heaven and earth, the, the bringing together these two realms God brought together and he created this place where he could dwell among his people. But actually, the temple of God began in Genesis. The Garden of Eden, in a way, was the first temple. God's original design for the temple was not a building. It was a place for him to dwell among his people, among his beloved children. Again, it was the coming together of heaven and earth. Listen to Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That reveals that God was literally with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked with them. They were cohabitants of the same space. And then sin messed all that up. You see, God and sin cannot coexist in the same space. It's impossible. God consumes sin. He's too righteous for sin to exist where he is. So sin enters the scene and God just consumes it. God eradicates sin wherever he is. 
And so Adam and Eve were expelled from the first temple with God. Fast forward to the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. They're traversing the wilderness on a, on a meandering route through the promised land. God gives them, while they're there doing this, God gives instructions for the Israelites to build what was called the tabernacle. It was essentially a mobile temple. There's all these instructions, all these parts that go in it. And it was a place that the Israelites, when they camped somewhere, they could set it up and, and God would dwell in their midst. And then they could break it all down and they could move it along in a caravan to the next stopping point and rebuild it again and God would dwell in their midst. Listen to Exodus 25.8. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 40.34 says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So even in the wilderness, God wanted to dwell among his people and that's the step he took to do that, this tabernacle. Now, after a generation, Israelites crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, and eventually, under the rule of King David, they established Jerusalem as the capital city of the nation of Israel. And it is here that the great temple of Jerusalem is constructed. And for centuries, for centuries, God dwelled in the temple among his people. Listen to 1 Kings 6, 11-13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, he said, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now, for the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem, in order for humanity to have an interaction with God in these spaces, they had to, to go through this cleansing, consecration process in which there's this sacrificial system all set up. Why? Remember, God and sin cannot exist in the same space. God and sin cannot exist in the same space. So there was this whole system set up to bypass that so people could be in God's presence. And it was only the, the high priest of Israel. Once a year, inside the temple, there was this, this most sacred place where heaven and earth had come together called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence dwelled. And it was only once a year that this high priest, after, after putting on these special garments and being anointed with these special oils and, and being consecrated by the other priests and sacrificing all these animals and burning incense and all this stuff, could he enter this space once a year and not be consumed because of the sin that exists in us. Throughout the year, Jews from all over Israel would make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time to really get into the whole exile of the Jews, the division of Israel into two kingdoms, Israel and Judea, and, and, and the conquering of those nations by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But there was a time for many centuries where the Jews were expelled from Israel and did not have access to the temple. So there were generations of Jews who could not get to the temple of God where God dwelled. That's a big deal. But God had this immense desire to dwell among his people. And he was so patient and so graceful and so enduring of, of all the times that people had turned their backs on God that he wasn't done yet. He wasn't done moving heaven and earth so that he could dwell among his people. And the greatest event in human history occurred. Jesus Christ arrives. Jesus Christ arrives. Listen to what John writes in his gospel. John 1, 1 and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ changes everything. 
Here we have God in the flesh, no longer confined to a specific location, accessible only to those who have undergone this ritual cleansing process. Instead, Jesus is walking among everyone. He's dining with sinners. He's touching lepers. How is this possible? How is this possible? Jesus in the flesh brings together heaven and earth in this amazing way. Remember, sin caused that separation. Sin caused a separation. God and sin cannot exist in the same space. So how was it possible that, that Jesus, fully God, was able to walk among the sin of the world? Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus very literally took on sin upon himself. He absorbed sin so that he could dwell among people, his beloved creation, his his beloved people. And then what did he do with sin? He nailed it to the cross and he destroyed it. He nailed it to the cross and he destroyed it. But it keeps going. Something else remarkable happens. On Jesus' death on the cross, listen to, listen to what's described in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And then some amazing stuff happens after that. But here we have this temple in Jerusalem. And upon Jesus' death, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separated where God dwelled from everyone else, was torn in half. It was rendered unneeded because Jesus brought heaven and earth together and he dwelled among us as God. It's literally heaven and earth coming together. But it doesn't stop there. God's not done yet. God's not done yet. Listen to what happens. After his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus fulfills his promise of giving the Holy Spirit to his followers. Those who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we receive in our very being God dwelling in us as the Holy Spirit. Try and let that sink in as best you can for a minute. What does that mean for us? Well, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Did you catch what God did there? God has made us his temple. Heaven and earth come together in us. We are sacred. We are divine because God lives in us and dwells in us. We are a temple of God, and God is, is among his children each and every day, individually, each and every day with us. Now, this movement of God, this absolute remarkable change in our position with God, in our relationship with God, it should have a drastic impact on our view of worship and how we worship him. Let's go back to the well. Let's go back to the well in this conversation Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman. For her, worship was a confusing matter. Her fellow Samaritans said, the Jews have their great temple in Jerusalem. We don't go there. We have this mountain here in Samaria, so let's build our own temple here. This is the proper place to worship God. But then you have the Jews saying, no, 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 you can't worship God there. You can only properly worship God here in Jerusalem in this temple. This is what this woman was wrestling with and dealing with when she encounters Jesus. And then Jesus says to her, he says, just, just wait and see how I'm going to open the door for all of God's children to worship God in spirit and in truth. When we take into consideration this reality of God's temple, what we see God doing 
is shifting heaven and earth to be in relationship with us. And it's when we embrace the reality that we are now temples of God. We are temples of the living God that we can appreciate what worship truly is. It's not something that we do to get the attention of some distant, faraway God. It's not something we just do on Sundays here at church. Worship, if we, if we are the temple of the living God, if heaven and earth come together in us, if we are divine and God is with us, then you know what? Worship is our very DNA. Our very existence is worship. Breathing is worship. We get to worship every day, every moment, no matter what's going on in our lives. That's what Jesus means. And he says something profound. He says, God is seeking true worshipers to worship me in spirit and truth. Think about that for a minute. The God of the universe has invited each one of us individually to worship him in spirit and truth. The God of the universe is saying, come on, worship me. Let's bring heaven and earth together and have this close connection. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what is biblical worship? How do we properly worship? Jesus said we are to worship God in spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit is to do so in total dependence of the Holy Spirit, God indwelling in us as his sacred temple. So then we let the Spirit guide and direct our worship. We let the Spirit open our eyes to the splendor and glory of God in every moment of every day. To worship God in spirit is also to commit our own spirit fully to him for his will, for his purpose, for his service in the advancement of his kingdom. That's what it means to worship God in spirit. To worship God in truth is to do so in total submission to the truth of God's word. God, God's word reveals to us who God is, what he has done, what his plan for humanity is, what his plans for us are moving forward. And it is God's word that reveals that only God is worthy of worship above all others. And to worship God in truth is to worship him and him alone. To worship anyone or anything else is the sin of idolatry and it's not true worship. We cannot worship God in truth if we are worshiping anything else in our life. We cannot worship God in truth. And then to worship in spirit and truth, bringing it all together. It means that we can worship God anytime and anywhere. I can't drive that point home enough. We can worship God anytime, anywhere. Worshiping in spirit and truth, it transcends our location. It transcends our personal preferences. It transcends our background, our, our ethnicity, whatever it is. None of that matters when we worship in spirit and truth. And that means, what that means is that it's not going to look the same for everyone. It's not going to look the same. But God is always pleased and he's always accepting of the worship that comes from those who worship in spirit and truth. And when we're worshiping in spirit and truth, there is no wrong way to worship. When we're worshiping in spirit and truth, there's no wrong way to worship. So I think I'm ready to offer kind of a maybe concise answer to what is biblical worship. All right, it should appear on screen. Biblical worship means to exist in awe and wonder of the glory, power, and majesty of the one true God who has moved heaven and earth to dwell among his children. And we can worship in spirit and truth because Jesus' work on the cross made it possible for God to dwell among us as his holy temples. That's biblical worship. And that should be so impactful in our lives because we're, we're all on this journey of discovering more and more each day just how remarkably uh, life-changing and transforming it is to have God dwelling among us. The first step to biblical worship 
to worshiping in spirit and truth is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John says, or Paul says in Romans 10 that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the first step to biblical worship. Just say yes to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, know that God has moved heaven and earth. God has moved heaven and earth to have a personal relationship with you. That's an amazing thing to consider. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to do anything different. You just have to say yes to God and go on this journey with God. For everyone else, for those of us who are already walking with him, we need to embrace this identity, who we are because of what God has done. We are temples of the living God. We are temples of the living God. And by embracing that, then, then we embrace that, that we need to be intentional about spending time with our Heavenly Father, learning more about him, his actions, his plan for humanity, and how he wants to transform us. And we need to recognize that we can do that no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through. No matter what we're going through. We can do that on the highest mountain when everything's going perfectly our way. We can do that in the deepest, darkest valley when life just seems like it's stacked against us and we don't know what to do. Why? Because God is with us everywhere that we are. Let's pray. Almighty God, our minds just can't fully comprehend the extent, the, how far you've gone, Lord, to connect with us, to abolish sin so that we can be in relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for not stopping at the garden. We thank you for not stopping in the wilderness. We thank you for not stopping in Jerusalem. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to be word in the flesh, to dwell among us, to take on sin. And we thank you that you have made us temples where you dwell, Lord. Pray for anyone in this space who has not made that decision yet at home or right here with us on our Hopewell campus. I pray for them, Lord, to embrace your love for them. Know that you moved heaven and earth for them. Have a relationship with them. And help us, Lord, to, to just see ourselves differently and see those around us differently, see the world differently because wherever we go, you are also. Wherever we go is divine and sacred space. Praise your great and powerful name.